0: This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. A billionaire land developer who's technically Jewish but wants to be a Nazi. A man who dreams of giving away his billions to build free housing for hippies. All while his properties act as money laundering fronts for the arm of the vast conspiranoid body. That's a heroin cartel infecting the heart of that same hippie populace with a soul-breaking heroin addiction and dentures the man who treats his ladies as trophies and painted neckties, dragging them into dark Beverly Hills bars to share with his fellow elites, yet seems to be genuinely haunted by the absence of one Shasta Faye Hepworth. Just who the fuck is Mickey Wolfman? What is the mystery that surrounds him? Is there even any mystery at all?
1: Michael Z. Wolfman is, in many ways, the definitive character of Inherent Vice extraordinarily complicated yet frustratingly diffuse in so many ways he is the most knowable understandable character in the film in that we've all seen this kind of man before either in our real lives or in the fucking white house and yet in so many other ways he seems wholly unknowable and totally inscrutable and he comes to us in a scene his only scene his only scene one in which he only has two minutes of screen time in a two and a half hour long film. He comes to us in a scene latticed with nuance and depth and complexity, asterisked with mystery and footnoted with all the various other mysteries that have been swirling about in the undertow of the film. As such, joining me today is a man uniquely suited for this kind of scene a fellow editor and writer at my beloved Brightwall Dark Room, whose work, like this scene, is riddled with complexity and nuance and humanity and empathy and a whole goddamn lot of footnotes. The most annoyingly, annoyingly prolific writer I know. In addition to writing 27 essays per week that each total about 11,000 words, respectively, this man is somehow also writing a book on the cinematic oeuvre of one Paul Thomas Anderson. The man who has written three essays during this introduction alone. Please welcome Mr. Ethan Warren. Hello, thank you for having me. (laughs) And and, uh, I I should have corrected that to say uh, Ethan has written six essays in this introduction because we're doing it twice because in true inherent vice fashion, a certain somebody forgot to hit record on the first 10 minutes of this episode. So we're, 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 we're having a little bit of deja vu here. And uh, you, you had this lovely bit, this lovely little bit where you were going to crack open a beer, just like our beloved Matt Zoller Seitz did in his episode. But now you're, you're only halfway into the current one. So we're just gonna have to listen to you gulp. We don't get to hear you snap it open.
2: It's true. Well, but I I did want to at least, you know, uh, call out the the due diligence that I did. I mean, you know, like... If Please, you're preserve to If you're going to embody the soul of any other guest on this show, Matt Zoller Seitz, you know, you could do a lot worse. You could do a lot um, worse than Matt. But so I I went to the liquor store yesterday and I walked all up and down the rows of craft beer for like 10 minutes trying to find like the perfect pairing to talk about inherent vice. And so I just want to... I, I, I did all this work. I want to say that Dark Truth Imperial Stout is... I will show you again the selection because because increasingly, I mean, with this movie, the more I sort of sit with it and, and watch it and rewatch it, the darkness of this movie is is what comes out to me more and more. And this scene in particular this is a this is a dark truth sequence. So it seemed like the right pairing.
1: Yeah, that's been a growing thread too, in uh, as a uh, fuckmare twenty twenty continues to unfurl and drag us. <laughs> Further and further into its hell mouth, uh, the darkness—no pun intended— inherent in this film. So it 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 comes in in sharper and sharper relief. I knew this was a dark movie. I've always known this is a dark movie, but it was only this year that I began to use the word scary when thinking of this movie. Totally, absolutely, yeah. Especially in this scene, which we'll we'll get into later. We're going to talk about that, but. Um, outright horror there, the, this is a film that contains outright horror as much as there will be blood there is, a, there is a darkness, an oil black sickness at the heart of this movie and there's also just as much uh, oil black my god that was not a pun uh, <laughs> I just realized that but uh, countering that is, is it, the film is also suffused with a, a level of sweetness uh, and wistfulness and mischief uh, mischiefness. Uh, mischiefness of mischief that uh that is kind of standard pta and it's like the the two halves of himself kind of at war here but we're gonna get into all that we're gonna get into all that before we do i'm gonna point out what i also pointed out when we weren't recording which is that in a nice bit of synchronicity uh doc's direct engagement with the wolfman case it begins with he and denis dismissively angrily reading about wolfman in the LA Free Press at a cafe. And Doc's involvement with the Wolfman case ends in this scene with he and Dean doing exactly the same thing, reading the same newspaper in the same cafe. And in a further bit of synchronization, the guest for that Increment Vice episode was another Bright Wall, Dark Room writer, editor, Miss Fran Hoffner. And unlike myself, and I think unlike you, she was sorta of kinda tepid to downright not digging it. The the entire film just was not it's not her thing. Uh maybe that had something to do with her getting high and falling asleep in the screening that she went to, but she wasn't cool with it. She didn't like it. Uh and she cited today's scene actually in particular as the source of her disappointment in the film. Uh it's here where the Wolfman case, the case that she thought was the backbone of the film's entire narrative, it just kinda ends. It just peters out with another almost hour left in the film to go. And she's, she was like, you know, what the hell, what is this? This is what I thought the film was. And now I gotta, I gotta, just gotta hang out for an hour. Uh, all of which is to say, you know, we know how that, we know how the film lands with her, but in the words of an inherent vice, Ethan, where are you at? Where are you at, man? Where are you at with this? And now you get to tell me that all over again. We're going to pretend
2: like you did. Um, well, you know, it's, it, this is a movie that I, wholeheartedly adore um now which as i think is is becoming a recurring threat in this show um it was not love at first sight um by any means which is like not uncommon um for me and, and paul thomas anderson's movies um is you know as i was looking back on this like i think only there will be blood is is a movie that of of the ones that I have seen in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing them as they were released, which uh, started with Punch Drunk Love. Um, Only There Will Be Blood was one where I sat there and thought like, all right, I just watched one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as I wrote about it, Bright Wall, Dark Room once, um, Punch Drunk Love is a movie that when I saw it when I was 16, um, it made me like really viscerally angry. Um, wow. it, it It touched a sort of, a lot of anxieties and sort of, confusions for me and made me feel this very like affronted like you know why are you making me feel intellectually inferior movie I'm 16 and I know everything um and uh The Master I found totally um opaque now I I consider that uh my favorite movie probably of all (laughs) um of all time or of of, of his no it's if people ask me you know point blank what's your favorite movie The Master is my my easiest go to answer um and Inherent Vice, so it, this is um, probably the farthest I've, I've traveled to see a movie. Um, when I, I was living in, in uh, Connecticut, um, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, uh, was in grad school, and um, it was I was finishing grad school um, from afar, and uh, so I had a lot of time on my hands kicking around Connecticut, and uh, Inherent Vice was playing at the Angelica in New York, um, and it was in thirty-five millimeter, which I knew was going to be a really rare opportunity um, on the East Coast. And I'm not like necessarily a huge um, like celluloid evangelist, but um, with this movie, where it's it is so clearly, you know, it's it's Paul Thomas Anderson, but it's also like it's this movie that is so much about the texture of the '70s and really. You know, just avoiding all of the sort of cliche visual hallmarks of the '70s to create this really immersive experience. It's like yeah. I want to experience the the texture. I want to see the grain. I want to, you know, I mean, I think he even says Anderson says in in his um, his uh, WTF episode, I think, talking about this movie that like um, using these old film stocks are the closest you can come to time travel. Exactly, and, I remember um, that. Yeah, yeah. Like I wanted to to time travel with this movie, and so I I took the train down. I uh, I came up with some excuse so that I just had to be in New York that day, um, but it was all just just an excuse to go to this movie. And I um, I remember sitting there in the Angelica. It was a, a midday matinee, so there were just a few sort of scattered pockets of I think all just like young men um, there to to experience this thing. Okay. Um, yes. And I just remember this guy sitting down, like two seats away from me, and just as the lights go down, leaning over to me, a stranger, and going, "This is gonna be good." <laughs> <laughs> and then I, as you know, as I should have expected by this point, didn't know what to make of it. Um, and as I as I reflect on it, like it's it is funny that I had trouble making sense of it because. Around this time, I was um, really steeped in a lot of the context that unlocks this movie. I was interested in um, like counterculture comedy around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was obsessed with Paul Thomas Anderson. I had read the book. I had read other Pinchon. Um, I I was in my last semester of grad school. I was doing an independent study on noir novels, where I had designed my own curriculum, where I was comparing classic noir with. Uh, Postmodern riffs my Um, god Ethan, i was not aware that you
1: and i are gonna talk you and i're gonna talk
2: (laughs) well i I had kind of forgotten about it in the, the haze of the last whatever uh half decade and so to then go into this movie and still feel like i don't know what to do with this like yeah this is made for you yeah right and so i what what's what's kind of been um emerging for me as i reflect on all this is i think it comes down to I think this is a very uncanny movie, um, and I, I do have some thoughts on kind of the unconscious processes that this movie is playing with that we can get into in a little bit. But um, the the sort of stylistic and and genre uncanniness of it um, <laughs> is is I I think a term that it counts at least for me, and and I imagine would resonate with other people. Um, I hope um, where it's it's this is a movie that I feel like is sort of madcap naturalism is the best way I can <laughs> I can think of it oh that's good I'm stealing that be my guest um where like it's it's a movie that takes place in the in the real world our or sort of like it obeys the the rules of our reality for sure. the most part but it's a version of our world that has space for these um Zucker Abrams Zucker sort of sight gags and Doc getting bonked on the head and going like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> but like, so it's it's not quite naturalism. It's not quite slapstick comedy, but it is both and so it's neither. And that's really hard to kind of figure out how to process, I think, on a first watch. And and like so many things about this movie, it's it's completely intentional. Mm-hmm. He created a movie that is very hard to sort of, watch by our typical you know sort of processes and so it's it's hard for me to kind of fault people who never made it over that hump people who aren't you know going to devote the next half decade of their lives to studying and restudying this movie until finally in in july of 2020 they feel like i do yesterday like all right if, i think i unlocked this thing finally <laughs> do you do you do you think that's intentional because sometimes and he could be, be he,
1: you know PTA could be he could be playing coy. He almost seems taken aback sometimes, or a little surprised when uh, you know people find his movies hard to grasp. It seems like because you know, he's the guy that's like you know, you ask him what his favorite movie is. He's like, well, you know, I like sandler's Big Daddy. That's good. uh And then he'll he'll mention like a you know, the Red Shoes or something after that in the same breath, but. It always, in interviews, he always seems to be a little surprised if someone has difficulty or if they don't get a point. Like, you know, he seemed really taken aback. I remember when There Will Be Blood came out and and of course, you know, Bush era, everyone's making all this is what an amazing takedown, uh, an incisive takedown of the corrosive core of capitalism. And he's like, I don't know, it's kind of just about this guy and his little boy, really. And I'm curious if the oddness of this film, if it's just he's making movies now that make sense so completely to him that he just assumes they're going to make sense to other people. Or if he is just, you know, mega uh, pinch on genius level guy that's just like, yeah, I'm the or what's uh, what did uh, James Joyce say when he wrote uh, Finnegan's Wake? This will keep the grad students busy for like the next hundred years.
2: Is he, he, you know, do you think he's like playing on that level? So you you ask me that question, and I just see like a row of doors in front of me for like which door do I walk through as as the way to answer this <laughs> question. So I'll just I'll just sort of go with with the first words that come out of my mouth. Now, um, he is somebody who, going back in his earliest interviews, like if you look at interviews from 1997, he says that his favorite filmmakers are the guys who are selfish in the best possible way. And it just so happens that that what is interesting to them happens to connect with us. Sure. And so I think he is somebody who, to varying degrees, and um, you know, it sort of waxes and wanes over the course of the past two decades. He is somebody who admirably um, is is looking to make himself happy first, um, and and is always just kind of i think banking on that more often than not it is going to connect with other people because it 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 seems to and and his interests for the most part do tend to be fairly sort of populist stuff you know when he's <laughs> making his riff on an Adam Sandler movie he is connecting with something that is very very mainstream and and you know when you look at there's that that anecdote of he um, he drops out of film school after two days because yeah. the um, the professor makes fun of Terminator 2 and he goes like fuck this you know Terminator 2 is a great movie what if I do like let's not sort of slander Terminator 2 and make people feel bad if if they want to be riffing on that and so you can see that tension right from the beginning like he's he wants to make movies that are very sort of I don't want to say what kind of movies he wants to make. He is drawn to populist popcorn aesthetics and and themes. And then the other thing, though, is, um, you know, and I I did, as we discussed prior to this, I came in Locked and Loaded to talk about this. One of his most significant influences is Robert Downey, Sr., Mm -hmm. who is somebody who could not possibly be more alienating and so if you're setting out to make populist robert downey senior movies as as to an extent he seems to be you, you can't really be expecting that like it's sure. gonna it's gonna be a four quadrant hit um but the thing about downey and you know should we just get into the downy of it all right now should we just let's go just there? get
1: it. let's just go to the Downey of it all let's all let's right. let's do bob downey senior let's get this out of because oh, he yeah. really uh, shock, kind of shockingly, and I suppose this is a failing of mine, uh, really has not come up on the show all that much. You know, I, I I try to dismiss early on the Altman comparisons just because we know they're there. We, I, we, get it, we get it. 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 Altman, Altman, Altman. And I've really been hitting up Demi, especially because I feel like Inherent Vice is in many ways one of his most empathetic films, uh, PTA's most in- empathetic films. And I think that he kind of inherited that Intense empathy for his characters, with the exception of Jimmy Gator, uh, from I think he inherited that from watching the films of Demi. But there is a there is such a through line from from Bob Downey Sr. to what PTA is doing. You're I think you're exactly right, and you want to let's let's get into it. Let's get into it now. Let's do it. Sure. Yeah. Um,
2: so it's <laughs> Robert Downey Sr. is one of his major influences, one of his mentors. Um, you know he's he's in Boogie Nights. Um, he, you know, Robert Downey Sr. is is the the um, sort of r- record executive who's yeah owns the studio. Keeping yes yes he's keeping Dirk from getting his tapes uh, in when they have that big confrontation in sort of the what like fifth out of twelve acts or whatever in Boogie Nights. Um, this is a YP, not an MP.
1: Yes. YP, what does that mean? What does that mean? I don't understand I'm Using this re- this is a recording jargon. Sorry, sorry. Keep going, Ethan, keep going. It's a new problem,
2: (laughs) yes. Um, So, as I'm sure anybody who's listening to an Increment Vice uh, episode knows, Robert Downey Sr. is this uh, sort of king of of underground um, cinema of the 60s. Um, You know, midnight movies, super experimental, um, sort of almost anti-movies. Yeah. And he, uh, Putney Swope, is probably his most famous, um, and Anderson steals the firecrackers uh, in Boogie Nights. There's the scene with Alfred Molina, and there's a yeah. the guy wandering around in the background throwing off the firecrackers. He stole that directly from Putney Swope at Downey's, um, you know, with Downey's permission. Um, and ever since then, he's he's been citing Downey as sort of one of his big major influences, even as, Downey has almost never made anything resembling a sort of commercially appealing movie or he did a couple of times in the 80s and 90s and they're not they're not good movies no. um and so what's interesting is to kind of try and locate like aside from the aesthetics because you can see sort of very surface level um nods to Downey, um my favorite Downey movie uh and just the only one of his movies that I just think is fully like a great, great movie uh, is Greaser's Palace. Yeah.
1: yeah. I'm a yeah, chafed I elbow. <laughs> All
2: right, All right. All right. I, I think Chafed Elbows is like just one notch below where like I respect it and it's really interesting. Greaser's Palace is a movie that I, I just watched it the other night. Just sure. joy of it because I just got the Blu-ray and God, it's beautiful. You can see a lot of, I think, uh, There Will Be Blood um, or you can see a lot of Greaser's Palace in There Will Be Blood. Um, the sort of rough-hewn churches and and sort of this um sort of settlers outpost in the middle of the desert i think has looks a lot like that um and if i'm not much mistaken i've never seen confirmation of this i think um there's a reference a visual reference to downey's movie pound in inherent vice um when Doc is on the ground with his hands between his legs uh as the police walk by. Oh and the
0: cops walk by, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's um that that's conspicuously similar to an image from uh Pound, which is a movie that Downey made in 1970, um, in which people play dogs waiting in a pound to be uh euthanized it's a very very strange movie um and of course this guy he's robert downey jr's father uh robert downey jr is in pound uh this is a clip you see all over youtube where he's a little like four-year-old saying to a uh hairless man got any hair on your balls i recommend people look that up it's very amusing (laughs) this is the kind of hard-hitting stuff you're going to get on incriminate but so the eternal question for me is where is the Robert Downey in Inherent Vice? Because Anderson says on that same, the the WTF interview, he says that he showed the movie to Downey and he said, I tried to do it like you would do it. And Downey, Downey goes, well, I wouldn't have done it like that. (laughs) If anybody wants to get a sense of their chemistry, there are four, I think videos on YouTube of, of uh, Anderson interviewing Downey. uh, Yeah. Get a criterion set of Downey and, and, the sort of the the energy between them is is a it's, a to to yeah, it's a movie to itself. It's a movie, very so. much so. <laughs> um, but so, were you going to say something? <laughs> well, no, no. Continue. I want, I want to hear. I want to hear where this goes. I, I have something to say, but I want to hear where this goes. Okay. Um, so th- there are there are certainly levels to which you can say this movie has has similarities to Downey's work. It's it's satire. It's political. um It's You know, I think Anderson says is the best stuff about Downey's movies is that they're, you know, they're political and they're experimental and they're smart and they got something to say, but all of that falls secondary to the fact that they're funny, Mm -hmm. which you, you can say of Inherent Vice, but also it's Inherent Vice is a movie that has such a raw emotionality that is just completely anathema to Downey. And so... The thing that kind of clicked for me in the past couple of weeks, as I've been kind of turning this question over in my head, is the quality that he, he uh, identifies in Downey uh, is the same quality that he identifies in the, the Zucker Abrams Zucker movies and, and, and shows that he was watching as sort of inspiration for the, the comedy in Her Advice. he says, both Downey's stuff and their stuff, he would watch and think, right, you can do whatever you want. Makes, and this yeah. this kind of, this ties more into sort of my broader thesis of where this movie falls in his filmography. I can talk a little bit about that, or, you know, I think you had something to say on the Downey well, we're, question. We're going to get to that.
1: We're going to get to mm-hmm. that. Don't worry. This isn't my first right. video. Uh Well, I think what made Downey's work, continues to make his work so interesting and intriguing is that um, it's... Kind of analogous to what you were saying is that for all of the satire and all of the comedy, uh, the films at the same time, unlike a lot of satire or comedy, especially of the the day, uh, it, it didn't make these easily digestible and compact statements. Uh, in that, you know, the the films were scathing and they were direct punches to the face. But at the same time, they they never felt like slogan movies the way a lot of satirical films can. In that, um, you couldn't put the ethos of a Bob Downey movie onto a bumper sticker; it wouldn't work. Yeah. Uh, and and gosh, if 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 there's a filmmaker like that today, that's got to be PTA. that like you can't make a bumper sticker out of a PTA movie. Uh, you can look at his post-punch drunk films and yeah he he did he had that that great line on uh on the marin show when he's talking about his films it's like it's about love baby and for as much as that might be true on some level god if if phantom thread is about love then what a complicated ambiguous and nuanced love film that is and i think that vice had the vice is maybe as much if not more so than any of his other films especially in the latter half of his career uh vice has that robert downey senior thing as well where you know inherent vice is certainly about something but the exact whys and the wherefores of that something it's on, om- it feels at times almost impossible to get your hand get your hand around. It's like a puff of pot smoke in sea salt air. It just it just goes right through your fingers. And that I think for a lot of people sounds like inherent vice. That that idea, I know it, I know it's about something, but you're gonna have to give me like a half hour to tell you what that something is. I'm gonna find it as I'm telling you. And that's to me the connection between these two men and their work is uh, especially in the post-punch drunk years that willingness to let the movie be clearly about something but eh, you'll figure it out like i'm not going to tell you i'm not going to underline it and that to me is the the most explicit connection between the two men along with as you said that reliance on it can do all of these other things but let's let let's let it be funny or in the case of inherent vice i think it's less concerned about humor it's like let's have it all let's have it involve all these things let's be political let's be angry let's be as angry as Pinchon was angry But let's not forget, this is really just about how much you can miss someone, how much you can love them, and that to me is where I see this standing. Like you could make a good double with this and uh, and a Downey film, and that's why they would speak to each other.
2: Yeah, well, what's also interesting is that a lot of what you identify and what I, I identified in that whole spiel I just did was a lot of that. The Downey overlap comes down to the pinch on of it, and then what you can then distill away. As the the particular Anderson interests are more the the Demi stuff the heart because you know I think you you watch Chafed Elbows and you think this is what the the Downey version of Inherent Vice would, would sure. probably be and I think Downey and Demi strike me as as the two perfect sort of halves of of Anderson's soul I think because. When he talks about Downey, he talks about his selfishness. He's selfish in the best possible way. And when he talks about Demi, he talks about how he's selfless. He's somebody who loves faces and he even the background players are always yeah, characters. Yeah. And so you in Anderson, then you have this filmmaker whose voice is, is this sort of selfish selflessness or selfless selfishness. <laughs> which I think accounts for so much of what is, is magnetic about his stuff to me is it's a guy who is always following the beat of his own drum and is is taking his weird impulses wherever they may take him, but it's he is also simultaneously such a, to use the sort of overused term, actor's director and, and mm-hmm. such a humanist. And it's rare to see that precise combination. And I think that, you know, I think that actually comes, that, selfless
1: selfishness or selfish selflessness. I think that also connects back to what we were saying earlier when there is this mix of uh, his love of just, just purely populist films, but also that need to do it his way and in a way that speaks to him, even if it's such an obscurantist film that no one else gets it. You know, I love that anecdote he has when he was uh, he had a Q&A round table with uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Coppola mentioned that Punch Drunk is his favorite PTA film. And P.T. talks about how he, he, of all of his films, that was the one he expected to be a huge box office runaway hit, and he was so kind of confounded that no, everyone kind of walked away like sixteen year old Ethan. No one got why this movie was so, in his mind, so great and so funny. He just couldn't, he couldn't figure it out why they didn't get it. And I think that that selfish selflessness is that might be like the the nuclear fission. At the heart of his of his filmmaking which is it's going to be that combination of i'm going to give and i'm going to give and i'm going to give everything every bit that i have all of my empathy all of my care but i'm going to do it in my way and i'm going to do it in the way that makes sense to me i'm going to sing it in the way in in my key and they'll like it or they won't and to go back to ethan uh six years ago to go back in time to ride to ride that celluloid wave in time travel there you are sitting in the theater uh any day now blaring from the speakers uh we've got the multicolored neon credits closing credits rolling when you're sitting there and you have no idea what the hell to make of what you just saw when you're sitting there do you look did you look at that as wow he finally made a bum film he finally like the heat's off he blew it like this is this the stretch is over or did you get a sense enough to go, because this, this is something I've never actually asked when people give this like ver- So the majority of people, it seems, when they see it, they have this. Uh, it's not that they love it, like like me and a handful of others, and it's not like they absolutely hate it, like a handful of others. It's, yeah, you know, I saw it, I didn't get it, uh, and I can't. I kept coming back to it and eventually it grew. But in that moment, that first time, and you, you're you not sure what, you, what just happened, was it a failing of his at the time in your mind? Did you sit there thinking he failed, or did you sit there thinking, "I'm just not smart enough for this"? This this is beyond me. This is this is clearly a masterpiece. It's clearly about something like a Bob Downey movie. This is about something I just can't tell you what it is.
2: I think it, it I think it falls somewhere in between the two. Um, I think I probably did feel a sense of disappointment um, because it lacked the qualities that had made. Um, there will be blood in the master. Um, the master being a movie that that I had trouble accessing, but that did grow on me. At least that is a a movie that is sort of grandiose and hypnotic and um, visually sort of you know mammoth. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and this is a movie that is is in a lot of ways deliberately low key. It's grungy. Um, you've you've talked before on the show about the way it's it's boxy and it's flat. And the it it's it's not a movie of grandeur. Sure. And I think I had kind of trained myself by this point to expect a certain level of grandeur in his movies. Um that is, I think, probably still fair to say is is lacking here. Um no, but lacking implies that it was meant to be there. Um and so I I certainly wouldn't say like, you know he fucked this one up, but I might say like, oh, maybe this is is the first of his movies that's just going to never be to my taste. Um, But I also, by now, had 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 that sort of growing love with two of the three movies that I've been there in the, in the theater seat for. And so I I had faith that, that this one would grow too. And um, I can't remember the next time I saw it, it's sort of like, it's all just sort of a, a a a haze rather um sort of up to yesterday um it's just a movie that is is by now just sort of part of me um so i can't really track that progression i think it is a similar thing though that uh, that i imagine a lot of people do go through where the next few viewings i was i was trying so hard to follow the plot yeah that i i don't think i even really noticed the emotionality um until i let go of the plot and then i access the emotionality and then a few watches later i could circle back around to the plot and connect it all um so yeah i mean it's i'm I'm never gonna (laughs) i i I guess by now i just sort of have to know that the first time i see a paul thomas anderson movie in a theater i'm probably going to be a little bit um underwhelmed because how how do you watch a movie that you expect to be one of your all-time favorites the first time. (laughs) Like, you know, I go into Phantom Thread. By now, Inherent Vice sort of taught me to watch Phantom Thread where it's like, I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna want this to be a transcendent experience and it's probably not gonna be. And I can probably just let that go and let this first one sort of happen to me and then these will be works that I will will continue studying. Um, Well, I
1: know that with me, I mean, I felt, I, I was in love with this movie by minute eight. I was, oh, I was sold. I was so sold. But Then as we've discussed uh, off air, uh, I have a certain capital M B, my bullshit that just, <laughs> if you're singing that song, I'm going to fall for it. I'm going to fall hard. And I fell hard for this, but I also do, I get that, that what the hell is this thing? I'll, I'll never forget watching Phantom Thread for the, I was, I was at the first LA screening and I was, felt I felt so cool and so lucky. I'm like, oh my God the first post inherent vice film. This is, and the whole time I'm just sitting there sinking in my chair going, this is beautiful. And I love all these Rebecca references and my God, PTA has got a second gig as a cinematographer. If he ever wants one, this is a beautiful film, Johnny Greenwood's score. uh, I know everyone loves it. I'm going to say it was his second best score of the year after you were never really here, but it's a beautiful score. But then I'm also sitting there going, I don't know why this movie exists. I don't know why it's here. I don't know why this man made this film. This says nothing to me. I am so cold. It's like a beautiful car. What did Stephen King call Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining? It's like a beautiful car with no engine inside. And then in the final, like, what, 10 minutes, I'm like, oh, I get it now. It's a love story. Uh, But it's of a a particular type. Uh, And then that retroactively reprogrammed the entire film for me. And the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, Jesus, this is just this is yet another masterpiece. Like, he just keeps just doing them so offhandedly um i did that with this i was that that neon font came on and i was done i was good and if, if the movie had stopped there and just been an eight minute short film i would still be proclaiming it the best movie in his uh, filmography it's just it's everything that i want
2: now well there there are such pockets of of sort of aesthetic um sort of ecstasy to the movie that it's it's, it's hard to like for me the moment where i was like I can feel that I am trying to go galaxy brain, but I can't quite catch up <laughs> is when, um, when he walks out of the office with Clancy Charlock and. Something's the, going the, on. Uh, the mini, the, the song, the mini yeah. Ripperton kicks in and I'm just like, I don't know what's happening. This is overwhelming. I am so happy. <laughs> so I'm yeah. never going to write the movie off just off, off yeah. that. And there's, there's enough of those sort of. Pops, it's, you know.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that and and maybe I'm only saying this because I'm I am taking in this film on a very incremental fashion and looking at it scene by scene and this is really it's this is the only film I've ever done this with where I'm just like I'm going to really just break it down to component parts and look at this and not as a film. I mean I've seen it a million times as a whole film so I can afford to just break it down as a scene by scene thing. And I cannot Think of a more modular film in recent memory, where it, it really does feel like it's a, it's, I know it's a cohesive whole, but it so works as a series of short films in which some of them just pop on a level that is like so much better than another person's entire film, and as you said, like there's some. There is so clearly something happening here that is that is big and, and bigger than you or I and majestic. Like that scene with Minnie Ripperton blaring with uh, uh, her daughter playing uh, Petunia Leeway. Uh, there's something magic about that. And it's, it's just like a little short film. And it's, there's, 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 just something, there's just something so magical about that. And I have yet to watch all of his other films, breaking them down on a scene-by-scene basis. And I do not have the energy for that after this. But I, 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 I kind of doubt that the rest of them work on that same level. There is something about this. There is something about it, like the film is almost designed like comic book panels and each, each scene is a panel and each scene is just packed tight, uh, like, a, like an Alan Moore comic or something, just packed so densely with information and jokes and uh, um, closed loop stories that can be told just within the, the course of that scene. And and in some cases, like this case, are entirely resolved in the course of just one two-minute scene. It's, an, it's incredible
2: to me. And well, it's, it's almost like a Thomas Pinchon book that
1: way. And, it, it, it,
2: yeah, kind of like, kind of like. You yeah. know, he, and, and Pinchon's never going to be an sort of airplane Hudson Books kind of guy where you grab it and you sort of gulp it down. Like, you
1: know, he's he's an esoteric. Matter. The matter-anti-matter collision that just occurred in that sentence right there. I am so glad this was recorded for posterity. Amazing.
2: Yes. <laughs> and so to think that you're gonna make a Thomas Pinchon movie, the first Thomas Pinchon movie, and it's gonna play, you know, sort of as immediately accessible to people. Sure. Is, is you know, probably folly. Um, well, and and you, you, you asked a couple of times or, um, you know, do you think that he really uh, is as incredulous uh, as he claims to be that this movie does not necessarily immediately open itself up to people? Y- y- <laughs> he's not stupid. He knows he was making the first Thomas John movie. And so it's, maybe he's disappointed that people weren't willing to keep returning to it the way you often have to with his books, John's books. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he knew what he was doing <laughs> to an extent so someone
1: who's literally writing a book on this man's filmography uh coming from like so let's, let's say the macro view i'm curious how vice falls into the evolution of his work for you because i do think that he is someone whose body of work we all kind of look at in a, a certain way, we 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 said on the show before so many times. Jason Bailey had that great descriptor of the first half, you've got Coke Kid; second half, you got Weed Dad. And I am now contractually obligated to say that every single episode, just because I like the phrase so much. Thank you, Jason Bailey. Um, but what what I find interesting is, you know, I don't I don't think any director, with the exception of maybe you know Tarantino, is really self consciously looking at their filmography and charting it as it goes and. Thinking about how it's being interpreted 50 years from now, 100 years from now, if there is if there is such a thing as 100 years from now, uh, and what again, what's interesting about Vice is it seems like such an odd sidestep of sorts to me in in a filmography that has a very kind of upward arc that you can trace. There's this evolution from say Sydney to Boogie Nights to Magnolia. There is a very identifiable pivot into the ambiguity of punch drunk love as well as it's kind of narrowing of character scope uh, and then that leads that's kind of like the second big bang of his career that leads to there will be blood and the master moving into far headier uh, territory but in a lot of ways it it is felt to me that phantom thread seems more like the natural progression after the master vice that comes vice, which comes before the master and uh, Phantom. Vice feels a bit like the filmmaker of There Will Be Blood and The Master looking back at the more unruly work of his early years before taking the plunge into whatever the hell kind of majesty, uh Phantom Thread is. It's it, and I and I don't think that that's that's actually literally what was happening. I don't think he's a guy who is so self conscious where he's like, I am going to take a look back at my oeuvre with the eyes of Weed Dad before diving into the most weed dad of my movies, but it certainly feels that way. Does, does Vice* feel like that kind of outlier to you? It, it, it feels like a bump in the road on this otherwise kind of very chartable course from Blood, Master, Thread.
2: Yeah, well, I'm not sure I'd say bump in the road necessarily, but it, it, it is an outlier in a lot of ways. And I didn't mean that as a pejorative, because um, obviously- No, I, I know, absolutely. Um, but I, I do see it as part of a a more sort of natural progression. Um, And so I, it it is very common, um, as I have been um, working on my book, um, uh, I'm very early in the process of this, I I am writing, uh, under contract with Columbia University Press, uh, a book called The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, they have a series of the cinema of ex-director um and so i i have only just written my the first draft of my introduction so this is all in the very early phases um but what i see is is a three act career it's it's a lot of people identify it's it's hard not to identify punch drunk love as as the schism point sure um but i i place vice as as the next schism point i see if you take his first eight movies, which I think you can um, as a cycle, in terms of like a song cycle, where it's um, individual works that also have certain qualities that that mark them as a self-contained unit. Um, and I'm partially doing this to sort of guard my book against obsolescence. I'm saying I am not making definitive comments on him as a filmmaker, you know, that will stand the test of time necessarily. I am saying, let's look at these eight movies and see them as, um, as a cycle, as, as um, three acts. And I'm calling it thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And so the thesis movies are the first three, Hard Eight, um, or Sydney as you, as you, uh, so obligingly. That's uh, the damn title of the movie. I know, I'm just, I'm, I'm that, you know, I'm writing an academic work where I have to use the (laughs) (laughs) title. Um, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia are, those are movies made by a guy who's saying, I am here. I am I am demanding my seat at the table. You know, I am making my first movie with Reicher Entertainment and I am an auteur god damn it. <laughs> and the the first three movies, you know, he's out there saying Magnolia is, you know, look, it's 1999, I'm whatever 29 years old and Magnolia is the best movie I'm ever going to make. And it's it's him self mythologizing. He's making three movies where he's saying this is what a Paul Thomas Anderson movie is. And then he hits that sort of, it, it feels very natural to say there's sort of a, a burnout moment there and he shifts with Punch Drunk Love several years later. He has said, he says it on that that Mark Marin interview, he's he's gonna break down his style. He's gonna dismantle his style and, and rebuild it. And um, Punch Drunk Love is this very interesting, as you've talked about on other episodes, this interesting experimental process. And then the next three movies... Um, Punch Drunk Love, Thoroughly Blood, and The Master, I think I see those as movies that are operating in in direct conversation with the first three. Mm -hmm. Sort of everything that is thesis in those first three is antithesis in the next three. Um, There's a great book by a guy named George Tolles, who's um, a brilliant film scholar and also collaborator of Guy Madden's. So he's writing some real sort of wild and woolly film theory. where he focuses very much on language he says those first three movies are defined by outward grapple uh you know it's it's movies where the characters are always saying what they feel and talking as much as possible as directly as possible and then the next three movies polls argues are, are movies of speech avoidance where he is now acknowledging that um that, that outward grapple is not necessarily going to get you to the truth And so he makes three movies about characters who are very repressed um, and have trouble sort of fully are are in some ways on a a journey towards expression, I think. Um, And then Tolles' book ends (laughs) before Inherent Vice. But I then see a synthesis happen with this movie. And (laughs) it's, you don't as often see it sort of demarcated as as a shift, um, possibly because we're just still so, it's so recent. Um, but there's a book called The New Biographical Dictionary of Film, um, which is this classic sort of reference work, sort of hybrid criticism and reference work. I'm, I'm blanking on the writer's name right now. He is a towering giant of film criticism. So rather than try and guess it or look it up, I'm just gonna not try and use it. Um, but he, the most recent edition was written in 2014. So he's, he talks about the master as the end point, and he says, um, for the first time, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson has always made unique movies, and now for the first time, he has made a self-conscious movie that is trying to be a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And my my argument is that the first three movies, and really every movie up to that point, has been in some way or another a referendum on what is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Exactly. Um, and so I, just, I can just imagine being... Paul Thomas Anderson, a man who I only know via interviews and have no particular insight into his brain beyond what I see in the movies and the interviews. But I can just imagine spending that long and that much effort trying to sort of argue with yourself and argue with the world about what is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And then you make this masterpiece and the guy goes, oh, great. Yeah, finally, you're just making a fucking Paul Thomas Anderson movie. What are you doing? (laughs) And I can just imagine the like, God damn it. (laughs) Like... (laughs) what do you want? And so, and, and he even, I was, I was watching today the, um, the Academy conversation um, on Inherent Vice, which uh, you can find on the AMPAS uh, YouTube channel where he says that he had just gotten sick of his own voice by this point. And that this movie was part of him falling back in love with his job. And so now when I see this movie, what I see is, as I say, synthesis, um, and, and Matt Zoller Seitz used that wonderful concept of it's it's weed dad and coke kid talking to each other, yeah, which is exactly kind of my idea. Is this is the movie where I, I see this as a movie of liberation? This is a guy who is has liberated himself from the pressure to have his work speak in conversation with itself. Um, there, he he's not running away from the things that make him him but he's also not directly trying to embrace them. Um, this is, and that's where it's the Downey thing again, the like, he has been saying since 1997 that he, Downey taught him, you can do whatever you want. But I see in those first six movies, a guy who is looking over his shoulder
0: yeah,
2: as he, as he quote unquote does whatever he wants. And this feels like a movie by a guy who has just said, all right, you know what? Fully. I'm just going to let it all hang out and do whatever I want and let the sort of chips fall where they may. And so it's a movie that I now see as this very beautiful work, this very, as I say, spiritually liberated work by a guy who has kind of, he's gotten the brass ring by now. Um, You know, he's maybe never won an Oscar that he gets to put on his own mantle, but he's, he's got the status. He's got the seat at the table. And now he can just make himself happy and and then i think phantom thread what then that is as i i have this vision of his his work as sort of the hero's journey where you start with with hard eight sydney hard eight slash sydney um just call sydney can save save Eight. all heartache. right all right come on um you have this movie that is that is fairly conventional as his movies go yeah. it looks and feels like lot of other movies it's the most
1: normal for lack of a better term it's the most it's the most non-pta visually in construction film in the pta filmography
2: yes sure um and then he he sets out on his hero's journey he makes these two movies that are if you are being uncharitable as many people are um and i see the point these are movies that are declaring themselves as masterpieces and then you know. That's act one of his career, act two, he goes into the underworld with Punch Drunk Love and he makes these other movies. And then um, with Inherent Vice, he hits that synthesis point, he breaks into act three. And with Phantom Thread, I see him coming home a little bit, which is funny because it's also the first movie of his that that really definitively moves away from his home base of, of America and Southern California. But Phantom Thread is also, I think his first movie since his debut feature um that it's a fairly conventional movie yeah um it it does not have a lot of alienating visual sort of elements it's it's a very very strange movie and so it's it is the synthesis normal you know it's it's a movie that has absorbed all of these sort of weird shit that he likes to do and then he has come out the other side and and made for the first time again something relatively conventional and and he was lauded for it by the academy and by you know by the box office um and so that's where i do kind of i am wagering (laughs) um that we're going to look back in 20 years and we will be able to say that was a cycle he sort of came around to a point and then started off on whatever sort of the next phase is going to be jesus you've really convinced me here (laughs) <laughs> like I'm well, great I, hope I,
1: so. I, I always I always say like you know I'm always looking forward to each episode there's a moment where my you know hopefully my mind gets blown by something and I am sitting here right now like I kind of wish we were a little high in a dorm room with the doors <laughs> playing in the background because that would be the perfect backdrop to the jaw droppery that is happening on my end right now um nobody well by the way you know please everybody don't go rip that idea off Ethan's gotta he's gotta he's gotta write the damn book uh, but yeah that that's that's incredible and i think you're right and I, I i never really as you said i've like everybody else i've just kind of cleaved the filmography in two at punch drunk and just said you know before punch drunk after punch drunk but sitting here thinking about it, you are you i think you are right there is kind of there is that that ascent and then there is that that underworld journey and then there is uh i think you could yeah make a you could make a very convincing case you have made a convincing case for this kind of unification of elements in vice and thread that are not there in blood and are not there in the master that there is a there's a balance and there's almost a piece for whatever fission is going on underneath the surface emotionally and whatever is whatever is being conveyed in those films there is a piece that i think is reflective in the confidence level you know i see pt is one of those directors everyone loves to compare to another director whether it's crocesi or altman or in our case you know today demi And and Downey, there's an almost Lynchian level confidence in his decision making in Vice, and and in in Phantom Thread. I don't I don't know of a filmmaker who is more confident and trusting in his decision making than someone like Lynch. And with these two films, PTA seems right there behind him. With just you might not agree, and you certainly might not understand the choices, but the the force of surety and confidence behind them is palpable that someone is this is this is not new to them this is not their first rodeo and it is someone who is totally totally and he would probably totally disagree with this i'm sure he would absolutely disagree with this but uh it is a sure and steady hand behind the camera at all times in these in these two films in a way that i for all of the confidence of his earlier films and all of the control of his his underworld films there is a a steadiness and surety that i just don't think is anywhere else and i had never really thought about it in those terms till right now
2: which is why I'm, I'm staggering well should i now try and double down well if i i have gained this much uh credit with you i was gonna say if you want to go
1: into technique before we get into the scene now might be yes. the time i'm gonna i'm gonna
2: push this is i'm gonna get real nerdy ethan's here. coming in um, hot yeah um and i hope this is i hope this is all more far out and groovy than you know a buzzkill <laughs> but um i did something um this week <laughs> uh which is i i cataloged every shot in this movie jesus christ yeah um and i created a chart um of shot length uh and <laughs> And I, I came to some conclusions, I think, about, about how this movie is operating on an unconscious level. Um, and a lot of them, you know, a lot of this stuff is is fairly sort of, if you think about it consciously, it's a little self-evident. But what I think is really cool is, is the way he is playing on these unconscious processes. And, and probably unintentionally on his part, it's just a testament to how he sort of intuitively knows how to play with us. Um, so... There are things called um, low level processes or, uh, or low level elements of film, I guess we should say, which are um, sort of the the just the physical way that a movie is composed. And there are things like the amount of color in a frame, the amount of uh, luminance, light in a frame, um, the amount of visual activity in a frame. And these are the things that um, impact our ability to receive a story. And over the 100 years or whatever, you know, 100 plus years of of film history, um, these things have attained a certain norm um, that is coming closer and closer to the ideal ease with which a human brain can receive a story um, with no interference. Mm -hmm. And so then you look at a guy like Anderson and it's all about, well, how is he then playing with that? Because um, he is not a guy who's making a movie that you can watch while you look at your phone and receive it. You look at a movie like, um, like the, the Eurovision Will Ferrell movie that just came out on Netflix, um, a movie that is is chemically designed to work while you look at your phone, um, to an almost nefarious Golden Fang esque degree, frankly. Um, so you're but, talking, so like, you're talking psycho cinematics. Psychocinematics I think that's that's the title of a book uh, that is that is very interesting that talks about this stuff and two of the factors are shot length and uh, shot rhythm and um so shot length like, people love to talk about shot length with Paul Thomas Anderson you know he has an unusually long average shot length it's sort of a, a hallmark way of talking about him um, in the last hundred years shot length has gone from an average shot length of about 10 seconds in 1930 to uh, about four seconds today. And so Paul Thomas Anderson, his, his movies, I think his lowest in vice Vice is on the low end of average shot length at about 11 seconds. I think Punch Drunk Love is, is the longest at about 15 seconds. So you could say, oh, well, his movies have a classical feel. They feel like movies from the thirties, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> um, Because arsenic and old lace, there's there's a website uh, called, I think, um, Synetrix or something like that, where it's a database with a lot of uh, shot lengths that I used as as a comparison as I was thinking about all this. They don't have any of his movies on there, unfortunately, but it saved me a lot of time. (laughs) Arsenic and old lace has the same average shot length as inherent vice, about 11 seconds. But what it has is a very small standard deviation. Inherent Vice has a crazy long standard deviation, which means that it's not so much that most shots in Inherent Vice are 11 seconds long, it means that a theoretically quote unquote normal shot in Inherent Vice could be anywhere from one to about 30 seconds long. And this is not completely out of the question with his movies, you know, there'll be blood has a pretty wide standard deviation, although it's it's smaller than Inherent Vice. But what Inherent Vice has, is a absolutely bug nuts uh, rhythm between short and long shots. And the rhythm of shot length is what helps us gauge mood and tone and genre in a movie. Comedy has quick shot lengths, moody dramas have long language shots and you look at There Will Be Blood, a movie that also has some comedy and and languid elements, and the long language shots tend to come kind of clustered together. We know when we are in a long shot vibe, Uh, you know, the Derek explosion, It's all these sort of beautiful long language shots. In Inherent Vice, he is pinging you back and forth from conventional coverage to these very long shots that are sort of sabotaging your ability to receive the mood and tone of the movie. And, and it's, it's thus alienating you from the experience of watching the movie. And when you have an incredibly long shot that follows several incredibly short shots, the long shot feels unnaturally long. You are, your brain is being tricked into expecting. so you take the scene where where Jade and Doc are out on the docks and she's about to bring in Coy Harlingen. It's about a minute or two of just back and forth coverage with Jade and Doc. And then Coy steps out of the fog and I think that shot is about four minutes long. The entire but, scene shot from that one shot. Yeah, but your brain, because it's been trained to expect these short shots, is going to experience that as uncomfortably, bizarrely long which is an incredibly effective way of putting us in Doc's sort of confused, paranoid headspace. But you got to be, like, pretty attuned to, like, wanting to to sort of engage with this stuff to not be uncomfortably alienated. (laughs) So that's one thing. The other thing that's really fascinating here with me is... uh, To me, rather, is a lot of these very long shots. And this movie has... um, shots that are are several shots that are more than two minutes long the longest one is is over six minutes um with shasta's um fully nude uh passive aggressive monologue to doc this is not the case with that one but a lot of these very long shots are very plot dense and that is not how the human brain works we cannot receive plot information in long shots and long that i should not i should say like uh shots of an extended length because long shot is a different term um, we are distractible creatures. We do not like to pay attention when we are watching information on a screen. <laughs> and any time that a shot extends past a certain length, our eyes start searching for information in other parts of the frame. And so every time there's a cut in a movie, it's basically the movie going, hey, listen up, you're paying attention? We're talking here. <laughs> And so in Inherent Vice, when you've got Doc say, um, he's visiting Sloan and Riggs and he's getting this info dump about what's going on with Mickey, it's this very long shot, it's a long push in, and your eye very quickly is unconsciously gonna start looking around the frame and you're gonna start dropping words, you're gonna start missing key information. And so again, you are being sabotaged, (laughs) literally from, from receiving the plot of this movie which I think is, is beautiful because that's what it's, if you were a stone detective and you were sitting there and somebody was that trying to like feel. give you an info dump, your eye is like, what is that over there? Oh my God, wait, <laughs> what did you just say? And so again, I don't think Paul Tom Sanderson is thinking about this stuff, but yeah. he is unconsciously, he is aware of how to create this sort of woozy, foggy effect. And I just remembered the thing that I really love about this, Um, so I'm I'm looking at this chart that I have created for my own personal pleasure of the shot lengths of this movie. And you've got, I've I've got this bar graph that is, is just completely chaotic. If you look at typical sort of shot length bar graphs, they tend to move in sort of a pattern. Um, conventional movies tend to move in a pattern that coincidentally aligns with something called pink noise which is a sound frequency that is is basically static. Most movies look like static, quite literally. Um, conventionally sort of easy to receive movies. And this movie, if you look at it and you try to see, see sort of sound in it, I started thinking about, well, this is, this is psych rock. You know, this is mm-hmm. this is a movie that has periods of sort of classical, you know, normal verse chorus chords and then it sends itself off into these weird psychedelic sort of riffs and and craziness. And I asked a friend of mine, a uh, great musician named Ryan Pauley, who is out in L.A. Um, and is sort of a walking encyclopedia of classic rock. I said, what is, a, what is an album that if I were to make this comparison, an album that is like psych rock, that, that has elements of very conventional rock that it then uses to buy the, the listeners uh, enough credit with the listener to go off in these crazy directions? He said, well, you're describing the White Album. <laughs> and I just got the biggest smile on my face because I happen to know that Travis Woods believes that Inherent Vice is Paul Thomas Anderson's White Album. And I can now say, <laughs> on an unconscious level, Inherent Vice resembles the White Album. And that makes- I knew it. God damn it, I knew
1: it. All right, now we're cooking. Now that my ego has been assuaged to some degree, I totally agree with this theory of yours. I believe it. I buy it. I think you're right. Now, I, I think you're correct, and it's, it, this is something I actually haven't thought a great deal about is the the actual visual construction in terms of shot length of the film and you you are right um and, and again i gotta say I, I love i love i love that he said the white album i can't I, I gotta stop i gotta stop where i'm going just to say yes 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 i Isn't love that, that amazing it was it's, such a beautiful a, moment that, that, that this is this is his white house it's, it's 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 that's the one of his films that goes in all possible directions every direction he has ever gone in Uh, individually on other films he goes in this film he goes everywhere it is his big bang it expands in all directions it's every tune that he knows how to play all in one very kind of messy but when you stand back and look at it as a whole ultimately cohesive work that said uh to go back to what you were saying about the the design of of the the shot length and i i I agree I, i don't i I don't know that he's actually sitting there thinking, well, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna specifically construct all my exposition dumps to be a single penetrating shot and not do the normal rat-a-tat-tat, uh, back and forth coverage to keep the eye busy. I'm just gonna have someone stand here immobile and do a download dump uh, for about four well, minutes man, about the history of a boat. And I,
2: I should say, while people are, are now, I don't want anybody to throw their phone against a wall. Because this guy's an idiot. That that is very rare. um sure. it, That happens in a few cases. A lot of this movie is shot reverse shot, info dumps. You know, Doc and but, Sancho at the diner. It, it is constructed that way. In a few specific instances, you're getting these info
1: well, dumps and long shots. What
2: I think is interesting, where I where I think that this
1: this gets a little amusingly perverse, we'll say, is yeah, those back and forth coverage shots of say uh, Doc and Sancho at the diner. They're they're it's evenly paced it's well paced it's it's comfortable and while we are shifting over each but what's still funny is so much of what they are saying is so hard to grasp uh your first time through anyway even if it is done in that very conventional way where i'm going with this though what i think is so kind of funny and perverse with this with this through line of thinking is that n- there is no other sequence in this film that is structured quite like this one today, in that it is so almost call like a call and response soul song. There it will be a almost blink or you'll miss it close up of Doc asking a question to Mickey, and then immediately flash to Mickey with his response, then flash back to Doc, um, and, and these these cuts, the 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 shots are so short, especially with Doc, like it'll just be there long enough for him to get a question out, like where's Shasta and what i find funny is you would going by what you're saying i'm getting really you know uh knee deep into the into the psychosomatics of the cinematics of this that with this level of mach- almost machine gun cutting this rat tat tat cutting this should be the most co- cohesive and digestible stretch of exposition in the entire film but what i find so funny is that instead all of the exposition in this sequence adds up to nothing that we didn't already kind of f- know about Mickey or were told about Mickey. We knew that the FBI wanted him as a pawn. I know I'm jumping ahead here. We knew the FBI wants him as a pawn. Uh, we know that he, ha- that he was with Shasta Faye. We know that he felt guilty about uh, his capitalist ways and was wanting to give all his land away thanks to Clancy Sherlock. And so what is amazing is this device if ever there was a film that finally needed to give relief to an audience by just giving them one pure moment of, you know what, here, here's all the pieces and we're going to a machine gun, cut them right at you in the most digestible way possible uh, to this, this film's credit and PTA's perversity. Instead in this sequence, it's all a bunch of answers that kind of don't add up to the answers we want or need. It's just, he is answering questions, but in the most oblique, Kind of, oh yeah, we kind of already knew that, didn't we? Huh. All right. And then on to the next thing. And that—that that to me is the—that is so inherent vice to me. Just the 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 amusing perversity of that. And I think that that is in keeping with what you were saying, but also almost working against it just for the fun of it. And that is something I, I just I love that perversity in this film.
2: Well one more thought on the, you know, the perversity of this film and whether or not he is intentionally, uh, creating something hard to enjoy. Uh, what I've been doing, uh, recently as I rewatch these movies for, you know, the zillionth time, um, is I'm, I've been reading the scripts along as I watch mm-hmm. and sort of clocking where there are, are diversions and, and, or, uh, you know, digressions or divergences, whatever. What I have been really noting with, with this, both Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread, are movies that um, take out a lot of of key telling material. Yeah. Um, in Phantom Thread, uh, there's, there's things in the script that he takes out that are just where, like, the themes are stated clearly, because he doesn't need that. It's a movie that you can feel very easily. Or in, in some cases, there's important not even important, but there's, there's backstory to the characters that is removed that you don't quote unquote need. It's cool. We learn in the script to Phantom Thread that Reynolds Woodcock is a World War II combat veteran, which is fascinating. Um, it really informs his character. Um, but he, he takes these things out just sort of trusting that the, the, the feeling of them will linger in the air and sort of pervade the rest of the movie. What he does here is take out pretty key plot information. There are a lot of amazing chunks just
1: deleted wholesale from the script. I mean, but, amazing. And Any other script would be the most necessary moments in the film.
2: Exactly. So like, you know stuff that pertains directly to the mickey story is um you know it's it's all in the pinchon book and it's it's not in the movie cuz he just decided like well we don't need that we'll just, let's get on to like the sort of interesting stuff yeah um or let's get on to the emotional stuff or the funny stuff um and i think the movie works fine but, but i think the movie works great obviously but looking at it now with that script in front of me it's like all right i i can see where people are are coming from when they still say and i know i listened to your episode last week where you get very frustrated when people say that the movie <laughs> doesn't uh, add up because it does but there's there's chunks that are missing that not only is it very hard to take the movie in on the first go but i don't think it's ever said on screen correct me if i'm wrong that um, you know, Glenn Charlock was part of a gun running scheme, and Mickey was just in the wrong place at the wrong time.
1: Yeah, that that is, in the, yeah, in the book, uh, 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 Charlock is actually killed for nothing, nothing to do with Mickey whatsoever, but because he yeah. was dealing on the side and he was crossing, uh, he was crossing, uh, gang and race lines. so He was taken out for that. Uh, PTA simply streamline that as well. He'll let's just have him get killed because he switched, Puck switched places with him and we need someone to put the snatch on on Mickey. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good way to keep us, to keep us in, in line with the book and let us have a body right here at the end of the first act. Yes.
2: But it still leaves this hole that like doesn't quite add up, um, you know, without some certain, the audience just sort of saying, all right, I'm sure there's, and that, you know, and that is, that's not un-noir. I mean, it's the classic thing with the big sleep, who killed the chauffeur? It doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Um, the author doesn't remember exactly yeah um and and there's elements of that here uh the thing that i really clocked this time yesterday as i was watching is uh, what what does rudy blatt I put under the car seat as he's driving off it's
1: it, and you know what that's in the book too and it's really never quite explicated it's it's also it's, just, a, it's a strange beat in the book i mean you assume yeah. it's like a brick of coke yeah uh, right but he's but it's it's never mentioned again it's just there and never mentioned again
2: so, dangling threads are not un-noir, and what Anderson does is he creates dangling threads that are <laughs> arguably not meant to be dangling, but all, all to the betterment of the movie, I think, to the, to the joy of this final product, but it, it, is, it is interesting and notable. With that, it's about
1: goddamn time that we watch this scene and actually yes. talk about the man, Michael Z. Wolfman. So, we're going to do that, and we're going to be right back.
0: for shelter. you where the fuck, is Shasta? Go away, little hippie.
1: Very hard. all right so we're talking a lot about we're using a lot of words like perversity and 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 confidence and you know and i think we have talked a bit about uh, pta's audacity but there is something to be said about the sheer audacity of dropping this scene 90 minutes in to what is ostensibly a two and a half hour mystery film because on a plot level this is this should be wholly befuddling to a first timer uh so as, as i was mentioning at the at the top of this episode 17 hours ago uh uh so like fran said so so the missing person the guy who's Uh, potential and then later very real kidnapping was clearly presented, clearly presented as the engine that would drive our plot. Well, he's just right here. Here he is. We found him. And uh, we never see him again. Uh, To go back to what you were saying right before the scene, uh, so much of the Wolfman case from the novel is just cut wholesale from the film. You know, there's a whole Vegas plot line uh, in which doc is chasing after him and it's in and it's mickey's in vegas with the FBI. it's all gone that's all cut and the 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 willful perversity of ex of pta excising genuinely absolutely everything related to wolfman that he can and still have any kind of overarching plot to hold the film together to give Shasta a reason to walk through Doc's door at the beginning of the film and to touch upon uh, something that I think, I didn't really realize until I started doing this show and talking to other people about, the kind of inflamed masculinity of Doc and the, the jealousy that comes from knowing that Shasta might not be the woman he thought she was, the and that that, that indeed that might have been one of the reasons why they split is because he saw someone who wasn't really there he saw an idealized version of Shasta and that her willful relationship with someone like wolfman indicates a a woman that he could not see or understand now all of that all of that aside the again the perversity of dropping this scene the resolution to what is supposed to be upon first viewing the film's mystery 90 minutes in with an hour left to go why how how do you do that why do you do that and yet i think thematically plot wise it's it's totally bizarre and it it, and totally perverse but thematically it makes so much sense here that as we push into the film's final act that this is the film this is pta making it explicit that the plot was never the point, at least not this plot. Uh, you know, we always talk about that, the more never try to follow the plot, the plot's not the point. There is a plot in this film, and I think it's the Harlingen plot that actually makes far more sense and is far more the point, but that this plot uh, is not the point and that what works here so well uh, is, is working on a thematic level. The, the re-corruption, the re-reprogramming, the recorruption of Mickey Wolfman is the point. The motivations of the Golden Fang of t- of time itself. This is the point, and it's so fascinating in that. Uh, just as I said earlier, that that Mickey is kind of uh, the definitive vice character. I'm not sure if I would do it, but you could make a pretty good argument uh, that you could make the the argument for this scene as well. That this is the definitive scene in Inherent Vice in that it answers so many questions without actually overtly answering those questions. You get the, again, it's that uh, Bob Downey Sr. sense of, I get that something is being said here. Something is being revealed to me. And I have absolutely no fucking clue what that is. And and that goes back to that Lynchian level self-trust. There is so much at play in what, on the surface just seems like a weird kind of confirmation of stuff we were already told. And then the source of all of the film's mystery, the source of the film's plot, just kind of ambles off the screen after two minutes. And we never ever hear from again. Perversity, absolute perversity. And I love it.
2: Well, first of all, I'm, I, I, you uh, you didn't keep my, my folio work last time. Let's see if we can get it this time. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> Yes. All right. Dark truth beer. Number two, just opened for, uh, for some the dark truths. Um, here's the Matt Zoller sites. How about that? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, it's it's the dark truths behind the dark truths. There's a line in the book. I don't think it is in the movie that, you know, the golden fang is the mob behind the mob. Yeah. Um, or even specifically there's the mob that the fake mob that you think is the mob. Then there's the real mob. And then yeah. there's the mob behind the mob. So, um, so the, the question of is, is this, you know, what, what's the deal with the plot resolving here? I mean, then the answer is it's not, this isn't the plot. And, yeah. and that's, that's kind of like, it's not, again, like I said earlier, it's not unnoir. noir to like, Mickey's sort of the MacGuffin and, and what we find out, that's classic Raymond Chandler stuff is you get to the end and it's like, oh, you, it's sleight of hand, what you actually were, you know, what was really going on this whole time was that Glenn Charlock and Tariq had this, were the real plot engine. But then, you know, if you want to not do that, you know, don't walk through that door, walk through the door where you say, well, it's not a plot movie, it's a story movie. Um, Which I think makes perfect sense. And that is something that I, you know, for the last several viewings before yesterday would have said, yeah, so don't worry about Mickey. Mickey is just a, a part of you know, the the way of getting us to the story of Doc and his relationships, which I, I still think is so much of what's sort of of real interest to Paul Thomas Anderson is this is a story more about a guy's sort of irresolvable relationships with his nemesis and his one true love. But yesterday when I was, I was really trying to sort of spiral everything out from the the Mickey of it all. I think even more than a plot or a story movie, what this now is for me is it's a theme movie. Exactly. Um, And and I I had heard your episode last week. Um, Your episode last week uh, for reference is the only episode of a podcast that's ever given me a headache because (laughs) I had, I had, no, it was a very (laughs) personal thing because I had so much tension of they I've I heard the term before that that listening to a podcast is the closest you can come to to knowing what it's like to be a ghost because you're <laughs> you're just beyond the veil of a conversation that you want to be a part of, and the longer you two talked, the more I just was like banging on the veil being like, "Let me talk <laughs> so you you call this a a horror movie mm-hmm. um, or this a horror sequence and yeah and when you zero in on that this this absolutely is a horror movie this is a body snatcher's movie. Um and really it's it's the even the plot is not so the mystery is less where is Mickey? Because it's you can pretty quickly infer Mickey's at Chris Kylodon. Like he goes to see Sloane, and Sloane's like, Oh, we we have this booby hatch, or whatever the term is that Shasta uses, and you're like, All right, so one plus one is two, that's where he is, And, and indeed he is. And the greater the greater plot question is. What's going on with Shasta? Is Shasta okay? And that is really never answered. Um, nope. And and so this is more a movie than anything I think about <sighs> about organizations that um, are able to you know it, it is it's it's the Golden Fang is body snatching people they body snatched Koi. They, they took somebody who was desperate. They, um, you know, made him part of their organization and now he can never go home again. He is he is always gonna be a traitor to his, you know, true self. Yeah. Just and like Burke Stoddard. Yes, the same thing has happened to Burke. The same thing has happened to the boat. The same thing, uh, I don't know if it's ever in the movie or if it's just in the script in the book, but Bigfoot is trying to get Doc to turn uh, informant throughout and, it's not out of
1: the film, but yeah, it's heavy in the book. Yeah,
2: and it's implied that, that Shasta is at risk of the same sort of um, reprogramming. That's, I mean, that's what this is a, a story about. It's about people being reprogrammed, and it's, it's that thing that, um, you know, that line about as long as American life is something to be escaped from, there will always be this eternal loop of yep. people who are looking to escape and then need to be rescued from that escape and then sent looking for the escape again. And it's it's the question of whether it is possible to stay on the outside of that system or if if you are just necessarily going to be body snatched at some point yourself. And so Mickey is is the heart of that. Um, And so, I mean, it it is just this this sort of unanswerable question, how much is this movie or not about Mickey Wolfman? (laughs) Um, And and it's sort of it is and it isn't, I guess. (laughs)
1: Well, what's interesting to me, and I'm thinking this just as we're having this conversation, and I definitely get the sense that the, the the second half of this episode, the half that we're in now, is going to be very white album-esque, and I think we're just going to start going in <laughs> directions, which is fine because we had such a concentrated, dense dose of talk in the first hour, but uh, what's interesting to me in regards to Mickey and his place in getting reprogrammed here is it's interesting to me that how... Inherent Vice comes on the heels of a movie, sort of, kind of, ostensibly about cults, but it's not really about cults at all. And yet, Inherent Vice seems to be almost suffocating with a cult-like mood and an inquiry into them that the master never comes close to touching the the the, the cults of capitalism, specifically, but also the 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 Mansonoid cults. The the it's all coming to an end death of the American century cults that began springing up so heavily in the seventies there's Mickey is such the fulcrum of that. He is such the avatar of that. And it's through the absolutely indelible performance that Eric Roberts gives the man is on screen for two goddamn minutes and I think he does more than almost any other actor in this film with the, the prismic range that he shows is just absolutely stunning. Just taking a brief pause, shout out for it. Shout out to Eric Roberts, who, my God, uh, if, if he's someone that you only know uh, from like the, the dark night or something like that, my God, uh, go see him uh, uh, as the, go see like it's in a theater, see him in the, uh, in the, as the utterly despicable Paul Snyder in Bob Fosse's Star 80. Uh, it's the most fascinating performance by an actor in the entirety of the 1980s, I'm gonna say it. Uh, or uh, the childlike prison boxer that he plays in Runaway Train. The man is a truly forgotten gem. And what he does with his two minutes of screen time in this film, the way he coasts on the waves of almost conceivably nearly, it feels like every possible human emotion. as a that's what m- cements this sequence as a horror film to me is you can see you can see the different levels that have been placed in his head uh the levels of security that have been placed in his head by the golden fang as as as, as doc and he go back and forth in that rat-a-tat-tat q a call and response back and forth they have where doc is like what are you doing here well my friends brought me here who who, who are your friends are they-? constantly back and forth thing. And you see, and again, it's such a beautiful performance. You see this winnowing away of all of Mickey Wolfman's humanity. You see it struggling. You see it wriggling. You see him he, in one moment, you know, hello, little hippie. And he's bemused like he like he thinks he's still in a dream. And so, of course, it's not surprising to him at all that he sees a floating hippie head out of the brush. Uh, and, and then he goes from bemused to confused to joyous. To, to, to almost a little defensive, to nervous, and then finally kind of tearful and shaken when trying to remember what happened to Shasta Faye. And then finally, when asked, you know, where the fuck is Shasta, all of his humanity washes away. And you see that, that he's been replaced by the machinery of the Golden Fang. And he's cold and calculating. And for a man who so warmly began this scene by happily waving and grinning and saying, hello, little hippie, he closes it by so coldly saying, go away, little hippie, go away. Because it's not his voice anymore. It's the voice of the thing. He has been body snatched. And to see Eric Roberts exploding with all of that humanity and all that emotion, even if he's playing a character who is essentially base and craven and evil, to watch that in two minutes, to see the cult completely erase that and deprogram that and leave him as a machine... It's fucking terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. I don't really know where I'm going with this Ethan. <laughs> I just think it's absolutely terrifying. And I think it is so indicative of why thematically, I got it back. You hear me? I got it back. I found my place again. Yes. It is so thematic, uh, thematically indicative of why Wolfman is important is because it is about this. It is about this. one of the things, one of the things that Inherent Vice is about, because we're talking about that, that Bob Downey thing, is I know this is about something. Inherent Vice is about time. And the Golden Fang is time's avatar. It, is, it robs everything of its essence, of its meaning, of its life. It takes things away, indelibly never to return. And one of the things that the Golden Fang steals, one of the things that time steals is Mickey Wolfman's humanity. And that's what it, it because that's what it does to Burke. It's what, the, what it does to Koi. It's, what it, it, it's It's what it has done to Bigfoot it's what it's trying to do to Doc, And we see it in this two minute, basically time-lapse of a human being losing all traces of what makes them a human being. And what is left is this, this cold capitalist puppet, the kind that can maybe run for president one day. And there's something about that that is so absolutely fucking terrifying, especially in the year 2020. Uh, with, with who we have in our White House. It, it's hard not to see similarities between the two, although it's hard to imagine a current president ever having humanity. There's something about that, that, that that is that is everything that this film is about. That is absolutely everything that this movie is about. Even the love stuff. It's about it's about time and the thing, taking something away, taking the humanity out of something, robbing the love that you have, of that old lady that you're not supposed to be with, but you can't let go of and it's all here on this ravaged and ruined face of Eric Roberts sitting outside a bungalow with his arthritic hands and his unshaven face and his disheveled hair and a shadow of his former self and all the humanity is kind of it's just draining down the side of his leg and there's something that's so absolutely fucking terrifying about that to me that yeah this might not be a horror movie but this the this scene this scene uh, coupled with the one that came before it this absolutely is a horror film for these five, five to seven minutes.
2: Yeah, I mean, thinking about There Will Be Blood, I mean, that's a movie that has the outward trappings of a horror movie with a comedy smuggled within. And this is an outward trappings of a comedy with a horror movie smuggled within. The unanswerable question, or one of many unanswerable questions about this movie, for me is is sort of how sympathetic we should feel to Mickey, because Mm -hmm. so much of what we hear about him is really, is horrific. And so it's kind of a testament to the, the greater horror of the Golden Fang that, that you should have this character who is as just, just horrible as Mickey Wolfman, Mickey Wolfman, and then still feel this tragedy and this sorrow as he is, you know, reprogrammed and body snatched and like, how horrible must this other organization be if you can make me sad? That this guy <laughs> yeah. is, is having his humanity taken away. Um well, I think that's part and parcel of
1: the empathy of PTA's works. As I said, again, mm-hmm. basically anybody but Jimmy Gator can steal can steal your heart in a PTA film. They really, they really can. And I'm not saying that I don't want to make the argument that Mickey Wolfman is a sympathetic character and that like you should mourn the loss of this pillar of humanity. But I think what is so sorrowful about this sequence is that this was a horrible human being a despicable human being who very late in life was still capable of reaching uh uh uh, what did humbert humbert uh, or nabokov call it about humbert humbert in lolita a moral apotheosis where he was going to come to a moment of realization of the wrongness of self and try to make amends and mickey actually did try to make amends again this doesn't make mickey a good guy but the fact that the thing is so despicable that they would prevent the potential redemption of a human being, as well as, as well as all of the goodness that would maybe not suffuse Mickey, but would radiate from his choice of goodness. All this free housing for hippies who, who can't afford to buy a home in Southern California. I don't know if you know, it's a little pricey to live out here. <laughs> and I'm sure it was still pricey it. for the day in, in 1970. And this is an organization so brutal the way that uh, Shasta describes Mickey's brutality with her in, 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 the, in the scene that follows. It, it, I like how you brought up that that wonderful line in the book where it's like, the, there's the thing that you think is the mob. that's not even really the mob. And there's the mob behind that. And then the golden thing is the thing behind that. And that is so clear to me here, where we, we, think, we hear about Mickey being this brutal, cold, fast, direct lover as described by Shasta. But then there's this thing behind him that is so much crueler. And so in so casually, not even casually, so hatefully indifferent on that almost Orwellian 1984, imagine a boot stamping on the face of forever, power for its own sake scale, that is absolutely horrifying. And again, I think what makes it so horrifying and what made me realize the depth of that horror is living in a year like 2020, where that's an average night on the news. That's not even a night. It's an average night. That's an average morning on Twitter when you first wake up and you're like, he said what? Okay. There's, and again, I, 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 and I've also said this before. I don't think that this is PTA or Pinchon being particularly prophetic and, 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 and pontificating these things and seeing a year like 2020 happening and going, yeah, that's a sure goal. That sure is a golden fang year. We're pre- predicting here. It's more the sad sorrow of recognition that not much has changed since 1970. The things that Pinchon was handicapping about 1970 when writing the book in 2009 still here there that the that toxin is still in the bloodstream and it's only gotten worse and that's why these moments now feel so horrifying uh, because we there is the horror of recognition in them and that the, the there is a horror of recognition because they they are still the same problems that we are having today they're still the same things happening today and there still is and, and today I think that there is uh, and I, I know I sound like I'm, I'm wearing a tinfoil cap uh, there is that sense when you're watching the news and you see more and more people capitulating to a mindset that makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Uh, you you can't help but look and go, Golden Vang got him. Like mm-hmm. we we have a group of people now who are politicizing the transmission of a virus through a mask, and and, and making it clear that that is an unacceptable thing to believe. And, and it's because they've been reprogrammed. Someone got to them. They they got to them. They got bodies snatched, and this is this is happening with family members, with loved ones, with people that we've known for years, who who we've known to be intelligent and 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 caring and kind human beings. That all of a sudden, you know, are screaming, "I'm feeling threatened in grocery stores because someone asks them to cover their mask or cover their face during a viral pandemic," and again, I, I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm beating the same drum here. But that's, I see all of that in this moment. I see all of that when I see the humanity drain out of Mickey's face. And I just, you don't even actually see a drain. That's what's so horrifying. It keeps cutting the Doc's face. And every time it cuts back to Mickey, it's a different facial expression with less and less humanity. It reminds me a little bit, and everyone likes to compare uh, Underworld, we'll call them Underworld PTA, uh, with, uh, with, with Kubrick. But I, I always think in this sequence of uh, Dave going through the Stargate in 2001. You know, there's all those various... It'll cut to a bizarre alien landscape, and then it'll cut just to a freeze frame of his face screaming. And each cut back is a different expression of horror. And if you look at this sequence, it keeps cutting to the topography of Doc's face, asking a new question, and it cuts, then it cuts back to an almost still-life freeze frame of Mickey Wolfman in, in, a, in a form of horror. In a, in a form of increasing horror as he's going through something and then what comes out the other end is the the golden fanged body snatched version of him
2: and that is so some- the line the line in 2001 is is my god it's full of stars so what would this be my god it's full of nothing <laughs> it's full of fangs my god
1: it's full of fangs yeah. it's full of fangs it's all go- my god it's all gold it's all gold yeah yeah fair enough man <laughs> that is the most inherent vice way of responding <laughs> to that 25 minute monologue fair enough man sure well no, yeah, look most pt yeah, that's how i know you've been reading a lot of that. that's, how, <laughs> that's the most pta answer possible when anyone is in an interview with him and they say something that they, you can tell they're so proud of him and so smart he'll just be sitting there going well sure i'll take it i mean you know on the day we we're just trying to get through the scene i don't know but that's fair i like
2: it Cool. Sure." Yeah, that's that. It is a very strong impression. I'm, I'm oh, very impressed. Bless your heart. Thank you. But, I, you know, it's you, you keep talking about the, the horror of this and the horror of 2020 and the horror of this movie. And kind of what's what's been horrifying for me about 2020 is how numbing it starts to feel. Yeah. Um, and and I think you see that as well in this movie, is, is there's a reason that, that Pinchon, Pinchon could tell a Golden Fang story about any year in American history. He chose to look back because it is this, this helplessness, I think, yeah. to that, um, you know, there's, there's really no way not to feel numb um, unless you just have superhuman reserves of, of I don't know what, um, of humanity or something. Um, to, to still feel shocked, I think, at this time in the world. Um, and whereas for me, I just feel increasingly beaten down um, by by the sort of realities of, of the world around us. <laughs> I have so many great inherent vice quotes uh, queued up here that I could use, but the, the quote that I've been thinking about so much is from Spaceballs. <laughs> Where it's like, why does it why does it just feel like the good guys can't win? And it's that, you know, and I, I will I will politicize my viewpoints by saying the good guys. Um, but you know, the, the forces of justice and the you know, to whatever extent that does or doesn't mean anything in America, <laughs> you know, the the forces of being a good fucking person. <laughs> seem to really have trouble get landing a blow and it's that line from Spaceballs where Dark Helmet says to whatever Bill Pullman um, you know evil will always win because good is dumb and <laughs> oh, that's the God, rule okay. book Press, no. well it's hard not to that's 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 the rule book that the bad guys seem to be playing by is you know why would we use the rule book good is dumb or to use a better inherent vice quote <laughs> <laughs> um, this is one from the book that really hangs with me is Doc just has this moment of sorrow where he says like or you know internally um, so you can imagine sort of saying it as she represents all of Doc's inner life. Um, it would be so nice to feel like he could trust the police just this once but there's I don't remember what the term is but functionally Uh, corruption is like gravity it only flows in one direction yeah and and i just i i have had that really clanging around in my head it's like how how can you fight against the force of gravity um and i i really do hope that people are hearing this years in the future when the year 2020 and the the encroaching golden fang um you know feels distant um but it's 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 hard to feel that way and and to an extent that is productive, I think. Um, you know, the, the, one of the real um, you know, terms of phrase that a lot of us have become very familiar with uh, in the past few months is uh, ACAB, all cops are bastards. Um, referring to the idea that even if individual police officers are virtuous, individual police officers are, are trying their best to do the right thing, they are still, uh, you know, part of a system that is inherently bastardize is, is inherently, um, you know, <sighs> counter to the, the theoretical notions of, of goodness and decency. Um, the term that I found myself coming back to as I watched this movie, especially as we come to the, the final act and the final stretch is this feels like a movie about AAAB, all Americans are bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As, as Crocker Fenway says at the end, you know, or even before that, it's it, where I say this is a theme movie. The theme that I, I really started to really access yesterday is this is a movie about Doc being forced to to look in the mirror and say, "Who am I? What do I stand for? Who am I working for?" Even Doc, this guy who is ostensibly you know one of the good guys, he even says it to Shasta. You know, maybe it's only in the book. Um, you know. I never, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. I don't get paid. I'm not a cop. And she says, yeah, but think about who does pay you and it's the Crocker Fenways of the world. It's it's you are born into a system <laughs> that going back hundreds of years has, um, has just been set up to make it impossible to live by the, the virtues that you ostensibly want to live by. And, you know, again, this is productive. Look at, look at uh, as of this recording, uh, the movie version of Hamilton just came out. And this this show that was widely beloved and celebrated five years ago is now being looked at in a whole new light of, you know, what is the actual sort of implication here as we elevate these guys who we are increasingly willing to say are responsible directly for so many of the, the ills in our country right now is Alexander Hamilton Golden Fang. Did I think I was gonna say that when I started recording this podcast? Probably not. But <laughs> this stuff all, it, it goes all the way back. The root is all the way at the very, the, the rot rather is all the way at the very root of the fang. And so I, if I find any, if I, if I can find my way struggling towards hope in this time in America, and if I can struggle my way towards hope in this movie, it's, it's the idea that maybe, maybe, maybe by acknowledging this stuff and by being like Doc, by looking in the mirror and saying, you know, I'm an American and I'm a bastard, that, that, that if, we, if we can somehow deny the force of gravity, <laughs> move towards a, a better future. Um, and, and I'm not sure the, the movie or the book necessarily Believes that is possible. I mean, so much of the the final image um, in the book is, and, and, and it's it's imagery that recurs throughout is, you know, what if we can just find some alternate timeline? What if we can skip our way onto a timeline where the past never happened and where the American is, fate fails to transpire? Yes, uh, which which is unlikely, and and it's and it is where this this does kind of feel like a nihilistic story. Um, to an extent that that is, sort of is and isn't Paul Thomas Anderson. Maybe this is more, you know, of a there will be blood story <laughs> than than it seems on the surface. Um, I mean, even I, I find myself uh, on this most recent watch um, having some questions about the sort of the koi Harlingen ending, which I... Um, I almost can't even think about without getting tears in my eyes. Ethan, don't ruin um, this
1: for me. Don't, don't don't you do it. Don't devalue. it. man, for me. it's
2: well, it's it's hard, it's hard for me because it's I, you know, I've got a daughter um, who is, you know, just about old enough to start having the little kid blues. You know, right. I, I I hear that line, I hear that, that line. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. She and she does. My kid gets the little kid blues, and when I when I think about the fact that I will cry on this podcast, that this story all does just go down to the fact that even amidst all the horror out there, you know, maybe there is redemption just in the fact that a girl and her dad can have a future. I'm, I've got tears in my eyes saying it. So it does pain me to say. <laughs> what what does that say? What, what, what questions does that raise about what if Koi <laughs> was not a, uh, a white heterosexual man, (laughs) you know, would, would, would Burke Stodger call Coy up? If, if it was Tariq, would he get a call from Burke Stodger saying, oh, all right, son, you can go back and join the herd, you know, or, or is there something a little bit, um, easy about the fact that, that the ending of this movie, um, is a happy ending for the people who are most prone in American life to getting happy endings, you know? I see
1: what you're saying. I, I see what you're saying. I get that. I get it. I get it. I and I, and I feel like I'm going to be like that that guy on Twitter. Uh, that guy. Any of those guys on Twitter <laughs> it's like, no, no, this movie means something to me, and you won't take that. It
2: means something to me too. I mean, but these I are will, these are questions uh, I'm just trying to figure out for myself. Uh, no,
1: I totally, and I totally. That's a valid point that the all of the people that all's well kind of ends well for them are the people that it always ends well for. Although, although in the book and deleted from the film, Tarik ends up pretty happy with Clancy Charlotte. <laughs> so, sure you does, know, yeah. let's let's make let's let let's underline that Tarik ends up one of the few people that seems to be in a nominally normal healthy happy relationship by the time the film ends uh so well and
2: and one of the final messages of this this story um again deleted from the fucking movie is <laughs> that that Tariq and clancy charlock are are paired up by petunia because uh love is the only thing that will save us which is a hell of a gooey center for a thomas Pinchon but sure sure and I will say I, I hear what you say but I will I will
1: the reason I will say something contra to that is I do think and, and and you when you were saying that you know you're wondering my god is this is this is this PTA's most nihilistic film is this his most caustically kind of black-hearted and I I think it comes precipitously close to it but I think that there there is something that does save it and that it's been said so many times in this film is I think it 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 began with drew McQueenie back in like the fifth episode when we were first coming to channel view estate it's that it is the in a time of total moral chaos and darkness it is the little decencies that can matter and can be redemptive regardless of their source it maybe it doesn't matter if it comes from a mickey wolfman or if it comes from a doc maybe what matters is that the effort and the and the attempt and the 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 hopefully still existent uh, human impulse towards some kind of decency for decency's sake for the righteousness of it not for any kind of redemption not to save yourself but and as someone who's read who's as an editor has read my bullshit uh, for Brightwell. Uh, there, there if there is one thing that a lot of my work keeps circling back to it's that uh, uh, that capital O capital G capital T the the person who wants to be in service of one good thing if they can point to that good thing if they can have that in their back pocket it's all been for something and and maybe if it can be all to have been for something even if it, everything feels meaningless now you can point to them and go i got that it mattered i mattered and i did something that mattered and now the people i did that for they matter they're able to have that thing that matters even if i don't get it and i think actually uh, and i think that to me is what so much of this film is, is that, it's that we're not gonna get the good thing. But if we do something and if we make a sacrifice, the, the next person in line might get the good thing. And I think that's something that Matt touched on in his episode when he was comparing so much of this film to the New Testament and comparing, we're, we're gonna get heavy here, comparing uh, Doc to a Jesus figure in a lot of ways. Doc's not gonna get the happy ending. Doc doesn't get a happy ending, but he makes a sacrifice. He, instead of making a deal with the fang to get all sorts of money for the heroin that he returns or to totally extricate Shasta and be like, you leave her alone, stay away from my girl, help us out. Instead, he, he sacrifices any kind of material gain, and he could have a lot, to make sure that one little girl doesn't get the little kid blues for a couple more years. He knows that it's inevitable, she's going to get him somehow, some way but by forestalling them, by doing this good thing, I think he he understands, he learns that that's kind of what it's all about. I think he spends the first 90 minutes of this movie, like us, thinking, oh, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to chase after this dude, this Mickey Wolfman, That that's 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 my job here. And there's a moment of disgust when he's throwing down the LA Free pa- Press uh, next to Dinas after, in a little epilogue to the sequence, he's sitting in the cafe and there is that, uh, That is that, there's that, horror movie moment yet another one where there's a picture of mickey wolfman like cutting the the ticker tape in front of the the uh what is it the kismet hotel and casino that he's that mickey is now obviously going to be the front for for the fbi you know we saw agents borderline and flatweed sitting outside his bungalow and uh we've had sanj tell us that this is exactly what the fbi that that the fbi is working with the fang the fang's going to reprogram mickey and all the millions he was going to give away the FBI is going to inherit to buy that 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 thing on the strip and and spy on the mob the the thing that we call the mob there and doc throws the paper down and he walks away in with this just look of sad disgust on his face and i think it's the sad disgust of a guy who realizes like we're re- slowly realizing it's a guy going oh this was never the thing i was supposed to keep eyes on this this was never the thing i was supposed to save And I think it's him realizing there's something else I could be doing. And I think it's a slow realization. There's this scene, there's the moment where he realizes that Shasta is not the woman that he thought she was. And he's realizing, I think in this very next scene, he's realizing, oh, I'm not even supposed to be chasing her. I wasn't supposed to be chasing Wolfman. I wasn't supposed to be chasing Shasta Faye. And what happens right after that, he has that scene with Sword where he's like, I'm working myself into a brain freeze here, Leigh. What am I supposed to do? And she asks him, what's going to stick with you in the middle of the night? What's going to wake you up? And he says, it's the little kid blues. And this is a very, very long-winded late night way of saying, I think you're right to a degree. I think there's a lot of darkness and nihilism in this film. And I think that both the film and the character of Doc teeter very close to the edge of falling in uh, to that golden fanged mouth. But I think the thing that stops Doc, it doesn't matter that Crocker Fenway was his first client. It doesn't matter that he's tainted the way Inherent Vice is tainted by Steve Mnuchin uh, for financing the fucking thing. It's that, you know what? I can still do something good. I'm not going to get a happy ending. It's not going to end well for me and Shasta. This don't mean we're back together. But God damn it, I can put one thing right. I can put one thing right. And I think that if there is any kind of something to this film, if there is any kind of bob Downey. it can't be a bumper sticker but it can be something to this movie i think it is that i think it is the little kindnesses and the little decencies in the time of golden things that there's that that's all there is that's all there can be and it's the it's the acceptance of that that there is going to be no big win for the good guys you know because goodness is dumb because goodness can't, <laughs> because goodness is dumb goodness doesn't get to cheat goodness doesn't get to win uh, goodness doesn't get to land the the KO, but it can do one good thing. You know, it's it, I always I always connect this this uh, this film to the line at the end of uh, the first season of True Detective, and uh, Russ Cole is all pissed off that they only got the one hillbilly murderer and they didn't get the whole death cult. Uh, and I love that uh, his partner Marty says, "This ain't that kind of story. We got our guy. That's the best. That's the best you can in this world. That's the best you can hope. We got our guy." and ultimately that's what doc does he gets his guy and i think that the fizzling away of the mickey wolfman plot here and then the mystery of where is shasta and you know the scene ends with him going mickey where the fuck is shasta the very next scene she just kind of ambles into the into the room like the, the that, that mystery just just melts away too and i think it's the realization oh it was never any of these i got to go after my guy and it's that it's that realization that it's the little thing and that the resignation, not just the realization, but the resignation that that little thing is gonna be all that you get.
2: And that's my speech, that's my time, Ethan, there you <laughs> go. I'm gonna push you back towards nihilism just for a minute. <laughs> God I, damn it, let's have a happy ending here. Well, it's there. there is something though, I think, to this idea, which is that that nihilism, the ending of this movie pushes nihilism so far that it almost breaks through to a sort of optimistic grace which is there's this line that I wrote down yesterday because it had never really stuck for me before. Well, and Doc is doing the handoff and Dina says, how can you trust these people? They're like they're, our ultimate golden fang operatives, this yeah. middle American family. Uh, Doc says, good people get bought and sold every day. Might every as well day. trust someone evil once in a while. It makes no more or less sense. Yeah and there is something kind of like so bleak about that that it becomes <laughs> kind of beautiful it's like a zen there.
1: cone or something like that there's yeah, something yeah. so accepting about that that i find that actually to be one of, i think it's i don't know if it's meant to be a joke or if it's meant to be horrifying but i find that to be maybe the most horrifying line in the novel which is just you might you might as well give it a, give evil a shot why not in this day and age what's the difference it's going to yeah. be it's going it's going to end in the same place either way it's going to end in entropy and despair either way but I will argue again, I will argue again, it will end in entropy and despair for our hero, more than likely. But the, the, the possibility however, that he will even be able to just briefly forestall that entropy and despair for another human being, especially a child, even though knowing she'll eventually get it somehow, some way, the Fang will always win because goodness is dumb. Yeah. <laughs> there is, to me, a nobility in fighting for the futility of forestalling that despair for a little kid just a little bit longer, because what's what's the alternative to let it happen now on your watch, or to do everything you can just to hold it off for a little bit longer? God damn it! Because she's a kid, and no kid deserves to grow up without her dad. That's what he, you know. He says that, that that don't sit right with me. That don't sit right with me, and I'm we I'm getting all one. I'm getting all emotional here. Um, yeah. But uh, that's why I that's almost why the one good thing that doc does touches me more than almost any other film that i know and that scene where he he says like i just i can't do it, it doesn't sit right with me and of so says we'll go get him uh there's something so touching about that because ultimately it is so meaningless but he's willing to risk his own existence for that small bit of meaninglessness because it matters to him and that's That's worth preserving. That's worth fighting for. That's something special. I I know you're wanting to make this a bleak ass ending and I'm not I don't. I honestly, (laughs) man, I really, no, I really don't. uh, There is something so meaningful in the act of almost that pure human obstinance of I'm going to risk everything. I'm going to risk my life. I'm going to risk my woman's life. I'm going to risk my sort of kind of quasi partner's life. I'm going to risk everything for a failed cause because that cause is right. The cause is dumb. And it's right, and it's good, and it's worth. It's worth the sacrifice, and it's worth the effort because the op- the opposite, I can't live with. I can't, I can't be the guy that does the opposite. I can't be the guy sitting in the bungalow saying, "Go away, little hippie." I, I have to. It's the I can't, I, I can't, I can't allow the little kid to lose. I just can't allow it. Even if, as soon as I walk away, they're going to come down anyway. I can't allow it while I'm here and then able to stop them and able to slow them down. And there's something so special about that. And that's, I think that's, that's what makes Doc special despite his flaws. And I think that's, it's not a bumper sticker, yeah, but that's, that's the, that's the Bob Downey to me in this movie. It's, that's the something, that's the something
2: we don't know. And here's, you here's what you're wrong knowing, in this movie is nihilistic. No, <laughs> <laughs>
1: no
2: I, oh, I don't, son of a bitch. I don't, no, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that I kind of wanted to have you try to convince me and, and I think it worked. I'm doing my damnedest here, Ethan.
1: I'm doing my damnedest. Can I,
2: can we we are clearly wrapping up can i throw in one more little just tangential question <laughs> you know my essays i need a ton of footnotes and i do have one sure of let's let's get the footnotes out i got a footnote for you so let's do it let's do it let's do it what um what are we to make of the fact that this is doc and mickey <laughs> coming face to face bugs bunny and mickey mouse warner brothers and disney facing off in a warner brothers motion picture are we to make anything of this at all <laughs> Oh, oh my god that just, never
1: occurred to me that pinch I on pulled man you from the most emotional place oh possible. god that well you know what did uh what did pta say it's some of the most lyrical beautiful writing in the human language mixed with the the best dick and fart jokes you've ever heard uh yeah. that pinch on oh my god i'm yeah good point i'm i got nothing to well, say I, I, well, I'm, I'm too emotionally exhausted at this point uh, but you know that's, that, that's that's that i will say okay i'll, I'll say this that's one of those things I had never noticed before, and now this scene will have a a newfound richness as I'm bawling my eyes out about the death of humanity and and the American
2: dream. Uh, I will at least be able to go, well, hey, you got Bugs and Mickey in the same scene. You got Bugs and Mickey, and and Doc is sticking his head up from below, a very Bugs Bunny image, and oh and my the, God. the the Mickey. This <laughs> is <Some> Space <laughs> the, Jam shit. Yeah, <laughs> classic. The the Mickey thing also is resonant to me with the Bob Downey to bring it all back around again is is there is something so poetically sort of golden fangy and painful about the fact that the son of this counterculture vanguard is now the sort of representative face of the yeah. the, the 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 golden fang operation that is Disney in the age of Marvel there there is something and, very painful about that
1: and who damn near starred in this film for a very time hard to
2: imagine yeah
1: as as doc and i you know what i i i can i i very much enjoy the uh the films of robert downey jr when he is actually acting um and not not just doing his weird self image quirkathon. Uh, and but that said, I do feel like there would be not much separating his performance in this film from something like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is perfect in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but that is not what this film movie. Needs. That's good not movie. what this. That's not what this film needs. No. But yes, that's a that's a very good point, and I appreciate you bringing a very Ethan-esque footnote as we as we come to a close. Anyone who hasn't read Ethan's work, if you like footnotes, boy howdy, you're gonna love this man's essays. Um, and I got one for you. Nothing. Don't have to say anything to this. I just gotta throw it out. And God bless anyone who's still here listening to us ramble on <laughs> into the night.
2: But if you almost if, if, midnight you know, East Coast time,
1: you know what? If you're listening to an Hair Vice podcast, you're down for rambling. Uh, while I never found, I was going to throw this out. And we'll get it. We'll get the hell out of here and everyone go to bed. But I will say, while I while I I never really found this film to be PTA's response to Altman's The Long Goodbye, the way I think a lot of people hoped going into it, and the way a lot of people still try to kind of fit it into that that uh, square peg round hole. Uh, I do find this sequence's symmetry with a similar moment in The Long Goodbye to be really fascinating, uh, in which uh, Elliot Gould's Marlowe is skulking around the bungalows of a booby hatch in which a disoriented, monstrous, missing person that he thought was the main case that he was pursuing is being hidden away by a nefarious doctor. Uh, that's, uh, that's Sterling Hayden playing Roger Wade, and more importantly, Henry Gibson as the evil Dr. Veringer, Henry Gibson, who would later show up as Thurston Howell, the man who holds court in the Firefox bar in Magnolia. Just had to make Wait. that. That just felt like a very <gasps> Ethan-esque, <Yes. laughs> uh, uh, a very Ethan-esque footnote. And I just had to throw it out there. There is a sort of, kind of, boy, uh, uh, um, inherent vice long goodbye connection there in that, uh, Dr. Veringer would totally fit in at the Chris Skyladone Institute, and the man who plays Dr. Veringer in *The Long Goodbye* does show up in the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, specifically *Magnolia*. A film you will read about in Ethan Warren's book. Is it *The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson*? That's the name.
2: It, it will be, uh, presuming that all goes well, uh, between the first draft of the introduction and publication date, sometime indeterminate in the future it will be called the cinema of Paul thomas anderson
1: yes. he he says that his prolific son of a bitch he's finished the book like while we've been sitting here he's already on the the second draft of the epilogue it's done it's already done he's done it's over it's it's, it's, it's all incredible. it's all up here now all that said oh by the way so help me christ if you even mention the white album and your inherent vice chapter i'm coming for you <laughs> i'm coming for you you're encroaching on my turf friend you got crouching it. on my yours. turf it's uh, all yours that said, I have to say, thank you so much for doing the heavy lifting and coming on for this episode. I, I felt like this was a very this was a very Ethan episode, a very Ethan scene. I am glad that you had the time to talk about it with me. Uh, before you go, tell everyone where they can find you, where they can read you, and uh, where they can, they can bask. They can luxuriate in your footnotes and the essays attached to them. Uh, well, yes,
2: brightwalldarkroom.com uh, is a website that I love so much and has changed my life in so many ways and uh, brought so many wonderful things and people and elements into my life, uh, yourself included. Um, oh, jeez. Oh. So you can you can find much of my writing there. Um, and it may be a little bit before I, I am publishing any there anything there, um, unfortunately, as I work on the book, but I'll be working behind the scenes. Um, and ethanrawarren.com um, is where you can kind of catch all for all my other stuff. Um, I, I did also write and direct a movie uh, a few years ago uh, called Her that you can find on Amazon Prime or watch it on YouTube if you don't want to pay the golden fang. Um, people, people are constantly <laughs> uploading it to YouTube, and I always tell people, you'd rather check it out that way if you don't want to watch it on Amazon Prime. I'm probably uh, never going to break even on this thing anyway, so just enjoy it to your uh, your level of ethical comfort um and uh yeah various other projects of mine ethanrawarren.com um and uh listen to increment vice it's an excellent show that gives me a headache when i listen to it because it's so good i want to be on it every week oh
1: thank you ethan and thank you for making the long suspected inherent vice spaceballs connection finally explicit <laughs> With this episode, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. It, it's been it's been too long uh, um, that we've gone and done this show without saying the words "dark helmet," and so yes. I, I, I so appreciate that. And I do appreciate you coming on these amazing insights. And I cannot, cannot, cannot make clear to you how much I am looking forward to the book. I, I really, really, really am. It's genuinely one of my most anticipated reads of the next year or two. I, I really want that, that, man. So, thank you for coming on. Thank you for everyone out there listening. And come back next time where myself and a very special guest are going to find a girl in a Country Joe and the Fish t-shirt in the (laughs) bottom half of a flower print bikini.
0: Kind of hard to imagine any mysteries being left to solve after these two chatty Cathy's worked their way through vice. And yet the return of Shasta Hepworth still looms on the horizon and with it the most complicated, mysterious and downright confounding sequence in the film's running time. Will we make our way through it? We'll see what we can see. Next time on Increment Vice.